0: This is a podcast about new crops. You're gonna love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin.
1: We were wrong. Um, in fact, uh, they, they did grow outside and we're still learning all the time um, what, how to make them grow better.
0: To the Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. I'm your co-host, Jerry Clark. I work with the University of Wisconsin Madison Division of Extension, serving as an agricultural agent. And my co-host today is Evan
2: Hinthorne. Yes, thanks, Jerry. So I'm the agriculture educator in Adams County. Um, so it's it's great to connect with everybody again and um, be in a space that we can talk and continue to talk about saffron for our what third session now, Jerry. Is that right?
0: Yeah, we're on to, on to uh, episode three, as we could call it. So we're kind of starting the trilogy here if you're, a, I guess, a Star Wars fan or anybody like that. But this will try to get the ratings that Star Wars does. But you know, we got a ways to go. Uh, but yeah, today we have the Vermont gang back with us. For the most part, we've got uh, Margaret Skinner and Arash from uh, University of Vermont as researchers uh, on Saffron. And also, we have uh, John Polipov. Uh, John is one of our growers here in Wisconsin, um, at Breadbasket Farm in Hortonville, kind of on the eastern side of the state. And new to our podcast team today is Brian Levin. He's a saffron grower from Golden Thread Farm in Stowe, Vermont. And Margaret tells us he's got a fantastic website that I just pulled up, and it does look great, so we can cover that as we go along. But uh, Margaret mm-hmm. was giving us a rough time for not checking that out uh, <laughs> earlier. But today we're going to kind of focus on the uh, the production side of things. If you've listened to our earlier podcasts, you know we've kind of covered a brief, kind of a high-level overview of what Saffron is and then kind of dug into the marketing the last time. So, Evan, today I think we're going to try to dig into kind of that uh, – market, or excuse me, the production side of it. And that's where we have Brian and John to kind of lead us along that path on their experiences as well as what Margaret and Arash have experienced uh, from their growing standpoint. All right, so so Margaret, if you wanna give us kind of that background again on uh, maybe how you got started, uh, why farmers are growing it in Vermont and how your project, uh, you and Arash, have expanded this project. Um,
1: Arash is from uh, Iran and Iran is the number one, producer of saffron worldwide and when he came to Vermont he said why aren't you growing saffron in Vermont and I said I don't I don't know and we started looking into it and obviously one of the well one of the reasons in my mind I work with uh, small farms throughout Vermont most of which are growing vegetables or ornamentals, and they have a hard time making a living. And so for me, I thought, geez, if um, growers could also grow saffron in our area, that would be a great supplemental income for them uh, because saffron sells for between 20 and now $50 a gram uh, so that is potentially a lot of money and it's uh, produced at a uh, the, the most intensive labor time of the year is in October and November and that's when most field crops are done. And so it seemed like an ideal fit, uh, similar to maple syrup production except at a totally different season. So, um, So you might ask, well what growers are coming to you to ask more about saffron and there's quite a wide range of different kinds of growers, uh, probably most commonly <coughs> we are targeting these small Vermont farms uh, who need who have some land maybe they don 't have too much land, but they have uh, uh, some land <coughs> and some experience growing uh, produce a lot of them sell at farmers markets, which make uh, an ideal way for marketing saffron. So that's kind of was our initial target. However, we get calls from all sorts of different kinds of people. Um, One of the common ones is people say, well, I'm I'm an educator right now and I'm planning on retiring and I have some land in Vermont, some agricultural land that isn't really being used right now and I want to come back to Vermont. I want to reestablish the farm there, and I'd love to grow saffron. Um, <clears throat> uh, partly, they're saying, you know, I know I don't, I won't make enough money on my social security, and so I want this as a supplemental income without having to go full tilt into a whole agricultural production system. So um, yeah.
0: Oh, so so we're talking about a small, you know, high intensive. Um... From a labor standpoint, a little more intensive from that standpoint, smaller acreage, so that's where it fits in with with obviously yep. small farms or or, or yep. uh, individual. And I guess I, I'd lean on Brian and, and John a little bit on this next question. Is uh, from a from a land standpoint, uh, production, uh, what do you call uh, soil type, that kind of thing? Has that driven some of your uh, decision making as far as I'm going to try this because it fits a certain uh, production system. So
3: Brian, you yeah, go ahead, Brian. Yeah, thank you. Uh, okay, sure, thanks. Uh, um, you know, I, I grow mine in uh, high tunnels, these cold frame hoop houses. So, and um, in, in you, you, you know, it's really contained entirely within the, the space of those two hoop houses. Uh, I, you know, I do have this plot of land where I, I started this farming operation, and and it's about ten acres, um, I'm, most of which I'm I, I'm not using yet. So. Um, if if I if I'm looking into the future, expanding production, I have room to put additional hoop houses out there. But again, it, it's it's a really condensed into a, a very small unit when it comes down to it.
4: Yeah, and, and for me, um, we we have just under four acres of land uh, at our farm. We live in in Kimberly, and our farm is in Greenville, Hortonville area. So it takes up very little space. Uh, we, we planted in a section about 25 by 50 foot section. And we used about a 30 inch bed system, which is very similar for other market, uh, market garden type farms like we have. So it kind of fits in. Um, and previously we planted garlic in that same bed. So it was just trying to standardize things and it doesn't take up very much space for us. And um, yeah, we have about 210 by 800 feet foot uh, property and it's a southern sloped facing direction from the top of our property It's a, it, to the very bottom. It drops to about 50 feet very incrementally. So it's just, it just seems like it's pretty good drainage and it's just a good amount of sun. Um, yeah, and the soil fertility, uh, we have like a silty loam, uh, very good topsoil. The area by where our farm is, the so Hortonville,
2: Greenville area, is very rich soil. So we're, we're fortunate for that. Awesome, Brian. I kind of want to circle back to you because you mentioned something. uh, You mentioned that you were growing it um, with in hoop houses. So first, can you just kind of say like how did you get into this? Like, what's the why that you started growing saffron? And then can you just kind of move into like why are you growing it in a hoop house uh, versus another method? Sure.
3: Well, like I said, we had this piece of land, and I I did uh, have an interest of doing something agricultural with it. It's a it's a great field, uh, you know, big expansive field, full sunlight. And, um, you know, we had the room. Uh, it wasn't until um, Arash and, and Margaret did their, their first studies and the reports came out from UBM that maybe growing saffron in Vermont could be a, a, a nice little, uh, well, could be a, a successful way to, to farm the land. And, and for me, I mean, you know, I, I really appreciate in, in Vermont, we have a lot of farm to table restaurants, um, a lot of just great quality food products, beer, um, you know, all kinds of spirits. Uh, and it's it's kind of a fun industry to, to be involved in, too. So for me, because I'm kind of a foodie, if I was going to produce something, I, I wanted to produce something that I liked. And I, I do love saffron. It's 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 uh, you know, it's it's certainly. Something that was very new when, when I started, um, and now you know, I'm, there's there's a bunch of small farms now in, in
2: Vermont, or even some larger operations that are that are growing it. Awesome. Uh, so, Brian, you kind of you touched on it that this has inspired you to grow, um, and I, I feel confident saying that with growth, there always comes though that um, the challenge or things that set you back. So, can you just touch on like what what were some parts of your production that set you back or things that you had to learn from um, to, do, to be able to grow to where you're at now? Sure, and, and I think I can answer that um, in combination
3: with the other question you had about growing in a high tunnel. Yeah. Um, because in, in the reason, um, you know, when I first started, I actually did have one bed outdoors, uh, but the recommendation from UVM was because of our, our, cl- our very cold climate, the growing them in a high tunnel was recommended. Um, I also discovered that you, you can get a grant from the from NRCS, uh, the Division of USDA, that will fund a, a high tunnel, um, and you know basically pay for all the materials. So I, I pursued that at least for, for one of my high tunnels, um, and I, I actually just found out there's no limit on the number you can apply for. So um, I've already I've already been in touch with the, the local office about getting another one going because. I'm going to have to transplant in a couple of years <laughs> and, and, and they're going to take up a lot more room once I do the transplanting because there's just going to be so many more corms. But as far as some of the setbacks, you know, growing in a high tunnel, um, it, you know, you do need to water in the winter. And unless your high tunnel is warm enough, you know, I, I was shutting my water down for the coldest months uh, and then kind of being late to the game at the end of the winter when they so, um, some of my crop was starting to go, go into its dormancy stage just before you know it was the, the optimal time to do that. So um, I'm, I'm working on keeping my greenhouses cooler in the winter now, which um, then, so that hopefully they won't uh, dry out as quickly. Um, but I'm also, now I have some heating lines in my pipes, um, but I think if I had to do it again, I would work in some way to, to keep, the uh, the the minimum temperature above freezing um, whether you know implementing some sort of geothermal heating system or something so that um, I could just keep the water on all winter and not have to worry about the pipes freezing and and being able to water and and not compromising the crop when I do water because it's inevitably going to fall you know below zero for stretches of time and um, but when it gets sunny the next day you know there's these greenhouses warm up to 70 80 degrees even if the ambient air temperature outside is below zero so uh, awesome. that yeah. you know all kinds of challenges and I, i'll say i i found the outdoor bed i had proposed challenges because as soon as the snow melt uh as soon as it melts in the spring the the deer at least in my neighborhood um, it's you know the only green thing out there and they would just mow it down overnight so um, I, I, I did manage to salvage that bed but I, I, I moved it in indoors to the second hoop house I built.
1: So John,
0: awesome. so John in, in kind of contrast to what Brian's explaining how what's been your challenge then as far as you know in the ground here in Wisconsin uh, versus in a high tunnel in Vermont?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, Vermont is just, it's beautiful. So I guess if, if you can't be enjoying the outdoor scenery, you might as well enjoy the warmth and high tunnel. So I think um, I, I got a lot of inspiration from Vermont and University of Vermont, the work that Rosh and Margaret are doing. And I initially did start um, at a little high tunnel, but in, in crates. And then I also started a raised bed. This was on our home property. And then I realized the ones that did for us, the ones that were outdoors, um, the performance was better. Um, probably what, you know, Brian alluded to, like there is more maybe care and watering and other things and other factors that I just wasn't able to commit to at that time. And I found that for me, um, like the raised bed type uh, system works better, less maintenance for me in the off season um, and the deer pressure and animal pressure. Initially, I, I did notice some damage. Um, so we put in a, a, like a plastic fencing that we got from the DNR. Uh, there's programs if you have some crop damage we had some other crops for our diversified vegetable farm we had some damage and that's helped a lot Um, we haven't had any damage I think in the last two years in our bed systems that we've had from deer Um, but we did have a little bit I think maybe some corm rots because there were some low spots in our beds so moving forward I think what we're going to do is make sure that um, if there's any sinking or any you know shifting like we make the beds tall enough, and then um, ensure that uh, there's just good drainage all throughout, because the beds that were a bit higher, there was no low spots, um, those have performed well, and they come back every year, and um, you know, we had some weed pressure and things like that, but overall, we, we liked that functionality of using that space outdoors for now, but we're looking to experiment and try other ways, so maybe a high tunnel would be a good way to kind of diversify how we grow, so.
0: So, so Margaret and Arash, I guess you're, from your research standpoint, uh, looking at production, is that something you're looking at in, in addition to varieties or those kind of things? Are you looking at production systems? I know it's been a new research crop for the University of Vermont. How is the, what are you researching or looking at down the road here, or currently researching in terms of that production stuff that you know, John and, and Brian has been, have been addressing?
5: Yeah, actually we we are mostly thinking about different planting methods and uh, in some part, at some points, we are looking at a crop rotation for saffron plants because as I told you, saffron has a different life cycle. It grows in the winter, fall and winter, and then in the field, when we have it in the field in the summer, we don't have any green leaves. So we are thinking these days to... uh, develop an intercropping system with saffron in the field. And saffron is a perennial crop. So we have to work on the fertility of the soil. We are doing research to find the optimum situation, soil situation for saffron, because we keep it for a long time, like three, four, five years in the ground. We have to keep the soil fertility over the time. So is another aspect that we are working these days on it. Saffron quality is another aspect of uh, um, saffron production and especially marketing that we are working on it. We have a cooperation with the chemistry department. Uh, saffron does not produce seeds, is a triplet crop. And so we don't have different variations. We don't have different like it's not like corn and maize. It's like we have just one Curucucetivius. We have different genotypes, but they are almost like each other. Uh, one thing that I wanted to mention when Brian wa- uh, was talking about saffron in the high tunnel and in the greenhouse, we we have some other crops that have been grown in high tunnel and greenhouses for. long time, like tomato, it came to the greenhouse, like many, many years ago, and people have grewer have uh, enough experience on that. But saffron, saffron production in the high tunnel in the control chamber or the area which is covered is like, uh, we don't have enough experience on it. And like working with the growers and other people gives us uh, this opportunity to find the problem and challenges that they face in those production systems. So maybe in the future, if you find source of funding, we'll uh, design a trial to work on that aspect as well.
1: Um, one <laughs> other thing, people might, growers might be, get confused because indeed, when we started out, we believed that, we hypothesized that saffron would not survive outside, uh, that we couldn't get a decent crop or they wouldn't survive over multiple years. <clears throat> That's why we originally started growing them in high tunnels. Um, we were wrong. Um, in fact, uh, they they did grow outside and we're still learning all the time um, what, how to make them grow better. And what has happened now, which is exciting but challenging is it's not just growers in Vermont or in Wisconsin uh, who are interested in growing saffron. There are people in Rhode Island and Virginia and Texas and Arizona and California and um, their situation, each one of those different locations offer challenges and opportunities. And so um, it's, It's, uh, there's a big, a steep learning curve. And that's where having growers involved in the research is really important because it'll help us answer the questions faster.
5: Yeah, one thing that I want to add is like, initially we looked at saffron very scientifically. And we came from stat to biology. We just calculated that when we cover Vermont state with, with a layer of plastic, with the temperature that we will have under that layer of plastic will be similar to arid and semi-arid area that saffron came from. So then we decided, oh, if we have sim- this kind of situation, we can plant saffron. And when we were, we were working on that, a guy came to us and say, hey, I have saffron in the field. Why don't you plant it in the field when you can? And so we said, oh, okay, if you have it there, we should, we, we have to try it as well.
2: So. Okay, okay, so in my mind, and maybe we kind of covered this, but, like, what's the coldest that saffron can – if it's outside, what's the coldest that it can – tolerate before we we start to see damage um, I'm just kind of like thinking about Wisconsin and we're starting to get warmer here um, but the month of April can always throw us a good curveball and we can get a cold spell or we could get a ton of snow yet so I'm just kind of wondering like if producers here started growing it this time of year this early April and then we get some cold weather like how are we going to be okay with like that little bit or should they be concerned or kind of kind of talk about like that? Or have we done research on that? Uh,
5: Margaret, do you want to oh!
2: that?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I can speak oh, dear. but yeah. I,
1: I wish we knew. Okay. I, I wish it was black and white. Sure. And the reason it's not is because like you said, sometimes you get snow in Vermont and probably in Wisconsin <laughs> in early October. Um, right when the flowers are coming out, um, a couple of years ago, we got, it, it got cold early and it never, it never warmed up again. And in that particular year, we, the, the flowering was very bad, harvest was very bad, kind of like the maple syrup season that we've had this year maple syrup producers, they made 10% of what they usually made. And that was because we got this warm spell. Go figure. Um, And so it's really hard to say. Uh, So my gut feeling, not based on research, I'd have to say, if we had an open winter with no snow the entire winter, I think the corms would suffer. I don't know. The way saffron grows is you put the corm in the ground in the fall, and we call it the mother corm or the original corm or whatever. Every year, the the baby corms that are produced by that mother corm are on top of that original mother corm. So every year, that clump of corms gets more abundant, but gets closer to the surface of the soil which means they're more susceptible to freeze damage. So, you know, it would be nice to say, okay, we'll take a corm and we will just put it in the freezer and see if it dies. But that, that's not going to tell us anything because it doesn't tell us the finer points about what's happening underneath the ground. And um, a saffron corm in October, is probably less cold hardy than that same corn in February or March. It's kind of like you know the butt, if you have an early uh, cold spell and your shrubs haven't hardened off, they will suffer from that cold. So so not to hem and haw about this, but there are lots of factors that make it very difficult to scientifically answer your question. Yeah. What, what is the cold temperature that you need to, to not get below? Because uh, I don't think we know.
2: Sure, so there's just there's more, info, what I'm hearing is there's more research or more information yeah. to come on it, which is, which is good, which is good. Jonathan, what, are, what have been your observations just kind of being a grower in Wisconsin with that same type of question?
4: Yeah, so I, I initially when I started growing it, I had um, thought, well, maybe I could grow this very similar because the research from University of Vermont and on the internet, um, which generally in the internet, it was hard to find solid information except University of Vermont and Saffronet. But it seemed like the spacing was really key um, and, and also for efficiency. Like I think we went with spacing them out every six inches and planting about every six inches deep. And that that was a nice we did five rows uh like that um in the 30-inch system and that was a pretty good system for us um and we found that the corms when we did that and made sure they're in that 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 depth um we didn't cover them in the winter um they've they've been generally surviving and part of that i think because some of that snow acts almost like an insulating blanket and uh the so it's, it's, it's really kind of shocking, like at sometimes you get a little warm up or maybe some of the snow melts and then you you see this green, beautiful foliage. And it's like, this, that's amazing. That plant is still alive. And I think part of that is the fertility underneath the soil and the root structure, the mycorrhizal fungi, how it adds and maybe um, adds value to that root and the development of those corms. So I think for us, we've had like this even late winter, early spring here, really cold temperatures, wind chills 20, 30, 40 below. And our corms look, they look beautiful. I haven't dug any out the spring yet, but the foliage indicates that they've generally survived well and including multiplied. Um, Same thing with our garlic. We had areas we didn't insulate. Normally we put straw on it. We didn't, and those survived too. So I, these are amazing plants. They're really hardy. at least from my experience in growing in Wisconsin so far in our spot.
0: So I know with oh, the, oh, go, go ahead, Margaret.
1: Well, one one thing about high tunnels is it's it's investing a lot of money potentially. Though the advantage in Vermont and other states is um, these days you can get um, a, a lot of support from the uh, from the government. But So you have this very, um, not high-tech, but a high-quality uh, area, and you're growing saffron, and it has to stay there all year long, even though you're only getting the value of a crop, potentially, at one time of the year. And a lot of people, vegetable growers, they don't, they don't want to do that. They want to use uh, that space for tomatoes or other high value crops during the rest of the year. One of the things that we would really like to do is start investigating, are there other crops that could be grown on top of saffron so that you could really make full use of that high tunnel? Um, But ultimately... You gotta move those corms out. They can't stay in that same location, whether it's in the high tunnel or out in the field. You have to develop a whole rotation system because just like all crops, they will, you know, it'll start, uh, there will be disease and insect issues that you want to avoid. And so it is important to, even at an early stage when people are starting to decide how to grow their saffron, they need to come up with a rotation plan, recognizing that someday I got to move those saffron out of the high tunnel or out of that field that used to have garlic in it. And Brian's going to have to work on that too. Um, That he's going to need to develop some other cool crops that are of cool as in, isn't that cool man? Yep. Um, Is hip? <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're dating ourselves now.
1: <laughs> um, so, and Arash talked about that a little bit, that we are trying to uh, start thinking about how do you develop a rotation system that encourages, you know, good uh, crop fertility, as well as reducing disease pressure, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a work in progress, but People need to be thinking about
5: that as they're going forward. Yeah, one thing that I want to mention is like, uh, when we are talking about cold situation, we have to think about soil texture as well. It's really important if you have a clay soil or growers have clay soil, and they also in the area with the cold climate, they should be a little bit worried because especially in the January, February, uh, those kind of, uh, because in the clay soil, we don't have a good drainage system, technically. The water stays there and in the frozen or cold nights, the plants can be affected by that cold. So my recommendation is like, if you are in the cold climate, try to find a piece of land in your farm, which has a lighter like sandy soil texture. It It helps you a lot.
0: S- so the way it sounds that when the mother... So you've mentioned, Arash, that it's a perennial, but it's kind of a short-lived perennial. So maybe three to five years and then you need to move it or I know we're kind of still at the early stages of this, but then you dig up the whole corm. Can you divide those those daughter corms off and propagate those or is, do you move that whole corm at, at, into a new field or a new hoop house at that same time? Whoever Arash.
1: Wants.
5: Yeah, Yeah, sure. The the mother, yes. Technically, the mother corn that we planted produce some baby corms for us each year and die after a year. We don't have the mother corn after a year. So even after one life cycle, you can dig up the corms and replant them somewhere else. But it's not really usual when you want to produce flowers because usually people see more flowers in the second and third year. Okay. of production. After like three, four, five years, you can dig the corns up, all of them, and sell some of those if you have extra, because I said each mother corn produces some baby corns. That means the number of baby corns in, under the ground get increased like exponentially. So you can sell some of the corns that you produce and you don't want that, and keep some of those and replant them somewhere else. Don't plant your baby corms at the same plot that you had saffron before. Keep the rotation. In your- so is-
1: Brian, uh, Brian, maybe you can talk to that. When you dug up your corms that were outside, what did you find?
3: Yeah, and, and I, I have my questions too on this, but I found corms of all different sizes and um, it, I had my son help me. We even just, we didn't want to miss any. So we we would dig up an area and we screened the soil. I mean, and there's gotta be a better way. So I'm hoping you guys are working on this, but um, you know, this, this one outdoor bed I had was uh, 60 feet long and four feet wide and it probably had, you know, a few thousand corms in it originally. And then, um, so that I had corms of all sizes. There were some very mature ones, and I, when I replanted them, I, I sort of uh, replanted them according to size. So that you know, I spaced out the largest ones at one end of the bed, and as I as I moved down this new bed I made, it's actually almost two beds worth I made. Um, they they get gradually smaller. So, but what I'm wondering is what happens to those the tiny little baby corms, because my understanding is, is they really rely on the, the mother corn for the nutrients. And if they're separated out now, um, how well are they going to survive? And I, I guess it, this is a bit of an ex- experiment that I'm doing here to, to see how well that, that process plays out.
1: Ross, are you going to talk about that?
5: Yeah, sure. So. <laughs> Those really tiny saffron corns, they are not able to produce saffron flowers, for sure. But they are still have enough nutrition to produce some small leaves for us. And if you don't plant them really deep, they will come up Mm -hmm. after you plant them. So they will be or they should be able to produce some big baby corns after a year. So okay. you, you have to plant them. They are able to produce something for, for us, not saffron flowers, but definitely they are able to produce baby corns for us. But the key is like, don't plant them, them that deep. If you plant them like six, seven inches deep, they will die. They don't have enough nutrition to produce big leaves and catch mm-hmm. the surface of the ground. But when you plant them like two, three, four inches deep, uh, they should be able to produce something for you.
1: Okay. Uh, the one of uh, the uh, one other thing, Brian, that's important. That mother corm, at at the end of the year, after everything goes dormant, that mother corm is finished. She's dead. Sorry, <laughs> she is not providing any food source or anything for those babies. So. Um, so when you say, oh, should I separate them or keep them together, um, there's no value in keeping them associated with the mother corm. In fact, I think the mother corm, because it's just rot- dead material, is, could be a source of uh, decay. Um, but when you have a bunch of those little ones, um, you know, Arash said don't plant them too deep, you also can plant them much closer together. Because the reason you uh, space them out more, uh, like John was talking about, every six six inches, is that what you're doing, John? Um, You don't need to do that with the little ones because they don't need that much space.
5: And Margaret, Mm. I think it's not a bad idea. You share the thing that you sow in the hort farm with the small corns. You remember we planted? Oh yeah, yeah.
1: So we had a bunch of small corns, just like what Brian was talking about, and rock said, oh, let's just plant them out, you know, out in this area, and it'll, they probably, it was kind of late in the season, and I thought, oh, now what a waste of time, because there's no way they're going to grow, and sure enough, there was no sign of any green leaves this fall, and I thought, okay, they're going to just die, because they didn't come up early enough oh my God, I came, the snow melted, and there they're now, the leaves are maybe, I don't know, four or five inches tall, so, oh darn it, I was wrong again.
2: <laughs> I was going to say, sometimes it's not wrong to be ba- or it's not bad to be wrong. Um, <laughs> I like I said, not. right, you're always learning about it. <laughs> so so margaret and arash can you just touch on like if i'm a brand new grower or i'm a homeowner and i want to get into this like what where do i start how do i jump into this and then maybe john and brian maybe you can follow up after them
1: arash
5: okay Okay. but margaret listed some items for me Yeah. (laughs) yeah so for sure you have to first of all you have to get some information, read about saffron, get information about the life cycle, pest and disease and these kinds of things. Then you have to find a place to plant the saffron corns. So if you have a farm, you go and find a place that you get more sunlight and you have a better or lighter soil texture in, like sandy soil. Then develop a business plan, which is really important because if you are producing something for selling, you have to find a market for it, for sure. And having, having the business plan is really important. It is complicated. It takes time. It's not easy, I should say. Order the saffron corms right now is the time to order the saffron corms because some of the uh, saffron corn sources are not in United States. We have to import saffron corns, or they should export it to United States. So they get the orders right now, and they process your order. And if you do it right now, you will get the corns by August and September. Uh, prepare the planting bed is very important. Just, is not for, especially in the climate like New England climate and soil situation we have to uh, deal with weeds. So it's better to be proactive, go to the field, control the weeds with cover crops or tilling the soil, whatever you can. And that's it. If, sorry if I forgot something else. <laughs> you know, me, Margaret. <laughs> there's,
1: there's one more thing. Start small. You know, what John did, and I think what Brian did the first year they plant, I don't know, 1,000 corms? Less than 1,000 corms? John, what'd you start out with?
4: I started with 150 corms,
3: originally.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> Brian, what'd you start out with?
3: You no, know, I, I was a little more aggressive. I started with the 10,000. Oh, my god.
1: <clears throat> um, generally speaking, um, we encourage, if if growers think this is, this is the crop for them. Um, maybe start out with a thousand or two thousand, just to see how it feels, to see whether this is the crop for you, because you do have to bend over quite a bit um, at certain times of the year. You need to make sure that your soil is, is the right place for it. And so better to start on a small scale. And I'd have to say back in 2017, Growers were saying, oh, wow, I'm going to make $100,000 an acre, and I'm going I'm to start with two acres. And we said, no, 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 no. And luckily, except for Brian, <laughs> people, people had adhered to our recommendations, and most people started small. And some people have then expanded and gotten much bigger. And then other people have said, eh, maybe this isn't for me. And that's fine. We don't, to be honest, uh, you know, growers got in Vermont, they got really excited about hemp. They were going to make so much money on hemp. And farmers started growing hemp on every darn piece of property they possibly could find. Um, And they lost money. Um, they invested a lot in those plants and it didn't pay off and Arash and I and all of us at the center really don't want that to happen to anybody. And so even though it's not as good for us when we talk about, uh, the industry, uh, the saffron industry, you know, it's, it's more impressive when you have people growing thousands of acres of stuff, but that's not going to help the growers.
5: Yeah, I, I'm glad that Jonathan started with, with few corns. He actually listened to us very well. <laughs> and Brian, however, he started in a big, like, scale farm, but he's doing great. Yeah, and he's the only guy that I have seen in the farm, and I saw that he made the raised beds like similar to a recommendation, and. The system that he's producing saffron in it is awesome. It's amazing.
4: Well, well thanks. Thanks, rash I appreciate it. I, it was, you know, originally we're like, well, Hey, this is a cool crop. It looks fun. And you know, my, my, the, you know, as Rosh had said, there's a list, um, you know, that Margaret made for us to kind of answer some questions. So, you know, we started growing it for a number of reasons. one of them was uh, the, therapeutic values uh, my wife has endometriosis and we really wanted to find out hey maybe we can make some tea with this maybe we can cook in our food to help alleviate some of the menstrual pain and the suffering my wife and many other women have had um, I think I, I saw an article on Atlantic that saffron used to be considered like the Prozac of the middle ages by medieval nuns there's an article called the spice that hooked medieval nuns anyway really interesting mm-hmm. stuff but we wanted to kind of grow it and find out can we grow this for that but also can we grow it with our diversified market farm um and that's what we did so we started and it adapted and then uh the year after we bought uh 2500 you know 2500 quorums so at this point there was a slight increase in investment um, but we had we done that initially we probably would have lost more than half of the quorums due to our ignorance so following the recommendations has been really good and the wealth of knowledge on the Saffron Net um, has been incredible. There's some really gracious people, experienced growers. I, I think the, the knowledge that I learned wouldn't come anywhere else because you find so much, you know, just information on the internet that's just not valuable. Um, so I really, really encourage anyone to look first uh, on Saffron Net before you go and make purchases, before you go to hardware store and buy some corms. There's different type of uh, uh, crocuses that maybe, you know, you'll grow the wrong type. You want to get the uh, crocus sativus that grows in the fall and then um, go from there. But yeah, start small, keep learning. Um, it's a fun crop to grow. But if you just dump all your money into it, you're going to lose a lot of money and real quick. Um, it's supposed to be fun growing food and cool things like this is fun. So that's why we keep doing it. But also to complement our the rest of our veggies that we're growing um, and the value added products. We started doing some infused uh, syrup, uh, maple syrup, another inspiration from Vermont. And, and and it's really tasty. It's just fun to do these things because it stores well, it complements other food and complements our farm. Please spoken
0: like a true farmer john you're doing it for fun that's why uh, farmers and, and,
4: you know pay the bills too
3: but yeah working <laughs> <on that. laughs> i have i have one question can i ask a question sure go ahead mm-hmm. brian and, and maybe this is for john so so here in vermont cheddar cheese is like an off-white color but in, in wisconsin it's a it's an orange color and so i'm wondering and so in saffron I mean, I'm sorry, in Vermont, saffron is a, is an orange color. I'm wondering <laughs> if maybe in Wisconsin, it's it's a different color.
4: Oh man, Brian, it's funny you mentioned cheese. We were we work with a co-op uh, with a local farmer, or they 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 uh, Red Barn Family Farms. So I got that's a conversational ask them actually, but our our saffron is it's. I'm looking at your pictures and your website, and beautiful by the way. Uh, it's it looks very similar. It's just like this. <laughs> Richard dark and then we harvest more of the thread. Uh, so it's got a little bit of that orange and some of that uh, yellow, too. So um, it's, it looks good and delicious, just like yours looks like too.
3: Yeah, right on. I, I figured as much when Arash was explaining earlier how there's only one variety. Um <laughs>
4: But I, I do think that the maybe the nutritional value and the taste is it's gonna be different and unique based on where you grow it. Uh just like any vegetable. If there it's it's void of nutrient nutritional value or the the all the things that are in the earth, like it's just gonna taste flat. Um so I, I think I think it tastes great and it grows well. So
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: Well great. Is. This is
0: this has been a fantastic uh few minutes here to visit with you folks. I think I'll uh, just uh, wrap it up with uh, Margaret and Arash. Any final comments then we'll get some from Brian and John and if maybe down the road we can uh, visit sometime during the growing season again an update on how things are going uh, in Vermont and here in Wisconsin. So uh, Margaret and Arash, any final comments for today?
1: Uh, well John mentioned uh saffron nut, which is an email listserv and it's free to subscribe and there are about oh 780 people from all over the country and all over the world and um, ideally people that are on it have done their homework enough so that they know the basics of saffron uh, but when people contact me to ask if they can get on the list I always send them uh, six or seven different uh, fact sheets that will give them the information about how to um, how to learn more about it. Uh, we also have a website, which is pretty comprehensive. It could be better, I'm sure, but at least it gives uh, as much information as we have available at this time. Uh, and ultimately, learning from other growers is the key. Uh, we're the first to recognize that, which is why it's really important to have Brian and John uh, part of this call.
5: And before we forget, thank you so much for letting us to talk in your great program. And don't forget that it's Easter, happy Easter. Happy Easter, <laughs>
3: you too, yep, thank you.
0: Uh, Brian, any final comments?
3: Um, well, you know, I, I'm very grateful to uh, Margaret and Arash for starting this whole initiative in the beginning, and uh, they've been great resources going forward. So I echo everything they have said about the, the resources they do have that are available and collaborating with other farmers. Um, I, I think growing saffron, if you are doing it as part of a, a larger scale uh, farming business, is is a great way to uh, is a lot of fun, is a lot of is is a good opportunity to supplement your income. Uh, for somebody like me. Um, I actually do other things I don't I don't grow many other things but uh, so there's a there's a few intense times of the year I mean mainly the harvest time and and I try to schedule the rest of my life around those those few weeks of harvesting and processing and then um, it's 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 fairly light maintenance weeding and and watering you know at other times Um, so I'm able to do uh, a bunch of things and wear a bunch of hats so and, and continue this nice little business yeah, so, thank you. And thank you for including me in this.
0: Thank you, Brian. Jonathan, any final words?
4: Yeah, I, once again, uh, what Brian had said as well, thank you for Rasha, and Margaret and everyone that's been helping. Um, it's, it's especially nice to be able to connect so far, you know, from Wisconsin to Vermont and everyone all across the country and the world, really. So it's been really, really tremendous. Um, saffron is, is a fun crop to grow. To me, it's like a crop of like optimism. It's something you, you've, you know, plants in the fall. I mentioned the previous times, like a lot of times other veggies maybe start, you know, dying off. You know, you have things to clean, get ready for the next spring. And then the saffron is, is growing and then you get the flowers. So it's, it's a beautiful contrast of colors when everything else is already kind of dying and needs to get cleaned mm-hmm. up. And then it's one of the first things you see in the spring. Garlic, you know, but then you also see the saffron Um, the foliage it's just beautiful so it's a fun crop to grow it's a a lot of work but if if you would you know moderately start off small it's 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 really great addition to a diversified market farm in my opinion so thanks again everyone and happy growing
2: Yeah, and you know, before we, we log off here today, I just want to say thank you to to Margaret and Arash and Brian and John for being on. Um, but I also want to say thank you to our listeners. I know um after I shared our first uh Saffron podcast recording, I had a a few great um feedback. Um, with that so I also want to give the shout out you know if if our listeners have any other type of crops that they are interested in hearing about or learning about more like please reach out to somebody on the uh, cutting edge podcast team and we'd be more than happy to kind of dig in or try to get um, another another crop going so um, please feel free to reach out have a conversation with your county educator and we'll um, we'd be happy to try to work through that so
5: Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Division of Extension.